Welcome everyone to the Marvel Movie Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Somebody peed my pants, but I don't know if it was baby me or old me, or just me, me. The Marvel Movie Podcast by Fantastic Geeks Review of Avengers Endgame is brought to you by Barton's Hot Dog Mayonnaise. It'll turn your appetite to dust. Pete, this review being recorded on uh, April 28th, the, the Sunday after the movie has come out, and a week ago, nay, before that, Fantastic Geek was saying, I think that this is a movie that could get to $300 million, which seemed impossible according to those hollywood press types then you started to see articles could it reach 300 million you looked at the thursday previews okay maybe it could pete no one was predicting ourselves included that it would do 350 million dollars in the technically three days because hollywood accounting says the thursday previews that started at 6 p.m and went until 11:59 p.m that is all Friday, but in those three asterisk days in the United States, $350 million, your estimate. The movie has been open worldwide about five or six days, earning $1,209,000,000, rocketing in those five or so days from obviously no box office to the number one movie in the world for 2019. And this has redefined what a movie can do in a weekend time frame across the country and across the world. Indeed, a gaudy number, more than $100 million over the previous film to set the record in Star Wars The Force Awakens back in 2015 remains very much to be seen if the Star Wars entry later this year, The Rise of Skywalker, can challenge this number i think the smart money at this point would say it can't a discussion for another time though matt and speaking of another time we will have a separate podcast coming soon where we will talk about the larger implications of endgame for the entire marvel cinematic universe but today we're going to keep things fairly tightly focused on the film itself and Pete, let's talk about the title. Since we last talked about an Avengers movie, uh, let's reflect on our Infinity War podcast, where the rumored title of Avengers 4 being Endgame was roundly dismissed by us. Oopsie. I mean, listen, not everybody gets it right. I stand by what I said back then. I think you would, too. I think Endgame is the lesser great titles of the ones that I was made available. Uh, but it is what it is. And certainly you look at this unprecedented box office in the country and around the world, there is no, there, there, there has been no marketing misstep. There has been no lead up misstep. There has been no anything misstep for it to do this amount of business. This is more than buzz. This is more than a great ad here or a great ad there. This is hitting the center of the target and then exploding the target and then hitting the target behind that and hitting the center of it as well that they waited as long as they did to announce the title um, in December tells you there was quite a bit of discussion behind the scenes. Is this what we want to go with? 
when we catch you up on what went down, Matt, let's talk with the commitment to the heartbreaking tone early on at the Barton family farm. Yes, immediately, I think everybody in the audience, certainly you and I, were reminded of the opening to uh, to Guardians of the Galaxy, where it was now time to redefine how you feel about the exciting prospect of people in leather underwear fighting other people in leather underwear and hit you where it, where it matters most in terms of family. And I don't know, it was picking up on this notion of Clint Barton not being at all in the previous film and reference being made to house arrest and whatnot to open with just this, you know, I won't say, uh, you know, quite a, a gut punch because I think we could all figure out what was about to happen, but that didn't make the new hurt hurt any less. Yeah. And so smartly filmed, you know, first you have the daughter disappear and, you know, we know what's going on, but he's got no idea um, to show us the ankle bracelets to give us some idea of when this took place. And then, you know, the, the rest of the family, including a child, the, the youngest we've had implied, uh, turned to dust, just absolutely heartrending. It puts a face on where we were a year ago. And I think that that's, among other things, that's a really effective story outcome. And then you go to the title card, Matt, which if you go back and look at it, really well done. They excised all dusted characters from previous incarnations of that title card. So they played this close to the vest. I think now's a good time to mention that last week when there was the red carpet premiere, many Stars showed up, many stars of the MCU, etc. But the official press breakdown was stars of Avengers Endgame, and that's everybody who was not dusted. And then it was something like um, there, there was a separate category like stars of the MCU, not attributed to being in this movie, uh, being the dusted people. And then there was like friends of the MCU, which was some of the TV people and whatnot. But even in the red carpet where they could have let it down a little bit, let, let let the secret down a little bit to say, no, these people are going to be in it. No, they played the red carpet as, here's Benedict Cumberbatch, who's a friend, but not in this movie. Here's Tom Holland, who can't be in this movie anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time we're in space with Tony Stark and Nebula playing football out of spare parts on the Benatar we get just the slightest elevation in mood before, oh, yes, they're running out of food and air. And I think a really great restatement of where we're at, that letter uh, of sorts home that Tony is recording. I think, among other things, it's the opportunity to just, again, kind of restate the dire situation. Yes, we all should remember that he was out there in space and whatnot, but it just sets the table for what's about to happen here. Um, I certainly, I must admit, Pete, I certainly had kind of forgotten that it it was a natural conclusion that Tony Stark and Nebula would be hanging out afterwards, um, you know, after the last movie here in the ship. And to see them paired together is the beginning of a 
surprising arc in the story, which is that Nebula gets so much screen time and so much story importance. Absolutely. And right as Tony's drifting off here and Nebula's kind of tucked him in, put him in the chair, we get the uh, the glow against his face so bright he is forced to wake up and it's Captain Marvel to the rescue. Yes, the beginning of what I was sure would be many, many, many Captain Marvel scenes, maybe less than I thought, but you know what? All the more reason to get Captain Marvel 2 in theaters as soon as possible. Uh, she, the story mechanism to get uh, Tony and Nebula back to Earth and saved and whatnot. And uh, we very quickly see the tension that he has with uh, the remaining Avengers, as well as a shocking but not over the top of uh, of amount of emaciation for Tony to the point where it was like, is Robert Downey Jr. okay? What's going on? Whatever digital trickery they did, uh, you know, we talk about the de-aging and clearly the best use of the de-aging technology has been in the MCU. You look back at, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um you look at the uh, de-aging that goes on in this film, but holy smokes, Matt, the, the, the de healthing that happened to uh, Robert Downey Jr. here was downright just shocking. It was, although I appreciate that it wasn't kind of some over the top, you know, I think of, I think of when we saw Chris Evans pre- Captain America transformation where that was kind of really shocking. This was believable that Tony had been out there for 20 or so days and eye catching without being some sort of over the top body horror kind of moment. Yeah. Um, and when you consider a uh, little bit of an Easter egg at bat, 21 MCU movies coming into this one, 21 days that they've been floating around out there. I wonder how they arrived at that number. Um, and with Tony in this condition and the team uh, realizing that the Infinity Stones signature has just appeared on this planet, uh, name checked by Nebula only as the garden, the retirement plan that Thanos had, uh, they head there and head indeed, Matt, Thor with the head in the garden pete i had listened like literally until on the drive to pick you up to go see endgame i was listening to our infinity war podcast and there was a a passing smart aleck comment made by me uh surely no one anticipates that they're going to do the standard marvel thing for avengers 4 where they kill off the bad guy in this case thanos they kill him off in the first half uh, and I was like, oh, well, clearly they're not going to do that. This is the biggest, most epic thing of all time. Fast forward to an hour and a half after I listened to that on the drive <laughs> to pick you up where they seemingly, uh, and also when you get the rules of timey winding this down also permanently, but uh, kill Thanos with Thor lopping off his head there. It was completely shocking because it was like, wait, who's your bad guy going to be now? It's one thing when you... And you kill off somebody halfway through the movie, but we're barely 15, 20 minutes into it. Yeah. Uh, and it's done in such a way they're defeated. They cut his head off. Thor cuts his head off. No redemption. And then boom, five years later, we're in 2023. And I like how 
you know, it's a hard cut to black. They hold the black for a moment, then five years later, really, really leaning into the pace that they set for the first hour or hour and a half of this movie. There must have been even devil's advocate discussions once they kind of settled on, okay, we want to tell the movie with this number of scenes. We've gotten rid of the fat. We've gotten rid of the confusing things. We've gotten rid of the excessive things. Yikes, we're still at three hours. You know, where can you speed things up? Where could you maybe whittle out 10 less minutes instead of going five years later? Could you just do it all in one word or things like that? But no, they stick with the pace to really make you think about all the loss that has gone on. We get a few exterior shots, including City Field, where, you know, Pete, in 2023, they don't play games there anymore. Uh, and we get uh, a, a modest recovery group being led by, uh, led by Captain America. And uh, we get one of the Russo brothers in a cameo as a gay character, which has been called an MCU first by the film people who don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and don't remember Joey Gutierrez, who was definitely out. And Victoria Hand, who I don't remember if she was completely on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but a lot of Marvel Studios back padding that this is the first gay character in the MCU. Yes, Joseph Russo here, Matt, one of the directors appearing in, t- in this cameo. And again, it, it bridges the tone. They've had this time leap moving forward. And let's be honest, what's the, the biggest purpose for the time leap? It's so that uh, Tony Stark's daughter, Morgan, is old enough to have this important interaction with him that makes him even question whether he will join up with the Avengers again. I think one of the smartest things done beyond the greatest hits nature of here's the different places we're going to stop and get the stones where they were congregating together is the re-recruitment that goes on with our original team. And it can't be uh, diminished that of all the dusted characters none of them were original avengers yeah and in retrospect that's just a conceit of the story there's kind of not rhyme nor reason uh other than this movie was committed to taking the original avengers out for one last spin before a future phase starts to happen whether it's you know the next mcu phase or whether it's the next avengers movie which I think by and large this movie is not concerned without setting is not concerned with setting up anything for the future it's concerned about concluding this arc in this era probably wisely so um but yeah all those original avengers back and intact and for them to do it Matt we need a little bit of rodent ex machina for Scott Lang <laughs> that we do and uh the the well-timed uh pitcher patter of a rat in the uh, uh i shouldn't even say the van pete in luis's van i guess r.i.p luis and the rest of uh the rest of the security company there uh was r.i.p until the end of the movie where they can come back for ant-man and the wasp 3 but i digress uh the bleeps and the bloops uh pushed and uh and scott lang sent forth back into the world where uh, a little cameo from Ken Jong, who of course knows the Russos from Community, uh, is the uh, he's the security guard who lets out uh, lets out Scott Lang from the 
impound storage space. And I think with bringing Scott back and later we get the mechanism, you know, five years outside was five hours for him in the quantum realm and, and, you know, how we set up the remainder of the movie, how they'll go back and get the stones. Um, again, to sell the stakes that he's looking through the monuments to uh, the disappeared, to the vanished, looking for his daughter, who he doesn't find, thankfully, um, and then finds himself. And, you know, Matt and I go back and, again, under the spoiler Pete, uh, you know, persona, the, the time that Matt first wound up on the receiving end of that when I spoiled um, a character in the final Christian Bale Batman movie. Um, you know, Matt reads the trades. I read the trades. But sometimes I focus a little bit more on the casting announcements. And, you know, Talia Ghoul is cast. And then I say, oh, she's playing right. Talia Ghoul. And that ruins a movie for Matt. Uh, Cassie Lang, the yeah. actress. Side note, Pete, I would argue that uh, The Dark Knight Returns is a little overly appreciated, even without me knowing or not knowing. But I digress. The Cassie Lang actress, that was one of the first big casting moves for uh, this fourth Avengers movie. And it was, oh, she'll have a super big part and she's in three scenes. I suspect, and I'm not, this isn't even worthy of the theory section, Pete, but I suspect that they probably worked really, really, really hard to get this movie down to three hours. They were probably surprised, you know, like, hey, we're going to shoot a 200 page script that means it's 200 minutes okay that's manageable or whatever it is i think that they were probably surprised with the amount of footage that was coming back my hope would be pete if only there was some sort of place where disney could plus up the experience here and go hey on launch day for disney plus you can have the theatrical edition or Please, can someone return to the brilliant idea done with the Lord of the Rings movies where if you have more stuff but you don't want to have people sit through it in the movie theater where time is different than when you're at home, call it the Endgame Extended Edition. You you tell me that on day one, there's now a three and a half hour version. There's a three and three quarter version. There's a four hour version. Pete, I'm going to watch Mandalorian in the morning and I'm going to watch a four hour Avengers in the night. Come on. There's got to be more footage out there. There's got to be. There's too much that they must have shot that isn't there yeah. come on bring it on the, uh, forget so the Zack much, Snyder cut I want the extended edition endgame cut there's so much that has to happen and you know there's more on the cutting room floor and that's a great idea uh, I am going to volunteer that we will call that the Avengers endgame bladder dusting edition <laughs> uh, available on Disney Plus um, but you know we get Scott back and then we have these really great scenes with Tony Stark with his daughter Morgan that had been foreshadowed in Infinity War uh, pun intended with the P dream <laughs> there with everybody focusing on you know when will we go to the bathroom during a three hour and two minute two minute uh, you know tentpole blockbuster um, but to have that interaction with that little girl and Robert Downey Jr. always brings it, always chews it up. But 
this at a sentimental level we have not yet seen with this character. I must confess, I was not thinking during Infinity War about potential Avengers 3, Avengers 4 kind of storyline crossovers other than, oh no, friends have died. Let's bring them back because they are less expensive alternatives for the next 10 years than paying Downey Jr. $20 million a movie, etc. That line of, oh, I want to start a family at the beginning of Infinity War, I just thought that that was a character wedge against which it could be could start a family or stay home but must go in space and go save the universe one more time to see it now as a payoff completely shocked me and you see how elemental it was to this movie yeah and then when he of course has the reason to not join the team uh we go to professor hulk who we'll talk about in a theory segment you know couldn't become Hulk in Infinity War and now is comfortably Professor Hulk all the time dabbing with kids and unable to get them to take pictures with Ant-Man. It's the MCU and effects in general, industrial light and magic, etc., have been so good at computer generated characters for so long that any of these effects now should be commonplace and acceptable. And if they have enough time and money, they should look well integrated. But all the times that we've seen Ruffalo as Hulk, it's Ruffalo as Hulk, which acts in a, you know, Hulk acts in a way which is not entirely human. What with the grunting and the yelling and all of that to see this completely computer generated Hulk acting like Mark Ruffalo, you know, the guy that's in that Oscar winning newspaper movie, etc. It was just this other level of stunning because it looked so perfect, but it clearly wasn't Ruffalo in makeup. It was a fully realized Ruffalo as Hulk, as Ruffalo as Banner, as Ruffalo as Hulk. And it was amazing to see. And by the time we arrive in uh, Tonningsburg in new Asgard there to find Thor um, and the non-digital answer here of how Thor's let him go, let himself go hanging out with Korg and Meek playing video games against noob master 69 and uh, drinking beer using Stormbreaker to open bottles. The fact that you get two audience takeaways from that scene shows how, how smartly this movie is written and how economically it's written, even though it weighs in at three hours you get the implied sorrow that clearly he's running away from with drink, with food, with ignoring his, you know, this little tiny community that they're trying to restart in New Asgard. So you get all that sadness, but in front of the sadness are all the jokes and the ridiculousness. And the audience feels both. You get to laugh and you get to, as the laugh dies away, you say, I feel bad for him on a fundamental level because of the loss he's experienced. And Pete, what captures that loss more than the fact that he has to play Fortnite all day? (laughs) Like any Shakespearean tragedy, the ability to give us the low lows and then balance them out with that humor. So we we've laughed here with Thor and Korg and Meek. And then we head to Japan where Ronan 
where Clint Barton under this new assumed vigilante identity is just absolutely murder, death, killing bad guys. Pete, the lost fan in me was delighted to see that the character of Akihiko was played by, uh, by actor Hiroki Sanada. And, you know, in this tiny little, little scene, it's like almost not even worth his time. Um, but you know, there he is. I think he's able to capture in that one scene, the villainy of Akihiko, as well as just the bewilderment that whatever evils he's doing, he didn't think he was evil enough for this butchery that's going on. And I have to admit, Pete, I, I don't think it's very difficult to walk the PG 13 R line. I think the rules basically are don't show the thing entering somebody, whether it's a bullet or certainly a blade, certainly don't show blood, but Pete, he gets stabbed right beneath the frame of the camera and the music makes it brutal and and Renner makes it brutal and the whole thing is just again it's this it's a cool action scene and it's it's Pete it's raining so you know that's pathetic fallacy and it's reflecting how the characters are feeling but it's also just this sense of boom five years later Clint Barton the most passive of the Avengers the one who you know took 20 minutes out of age of uh age of Ultron for us to do the snooze fest at the farm now we see the contrast of it. This is a scene that by its villainy makes the snooziest portion of an Avengers movie in Age of Ultron at the farm. It makes that retroactively better. It does. That's the interesting quality of this film with a couple of the MCU's lesser rung films. But in Ronin, I've heard some discussion that, well, it wasn't dark enough I mean, it's it's as dark as it needs to be. It's literally dark. It's at night in the rain. You don't get you don't get you don't get darker than that in the PG thirteen movie. And then the guy gets stabbed yeah. out of frame. It doesn't get worse. If if you went deeper than that, I think tonally you'd have some real concerns. And once Natasha has re recruited Clint there, uh, of course, don't give him hope, Matt. Don't give him any hope. Um, you know, we're going to go on the, the time heist here. And again, we get some more laughs. There's the great Ant-Man, baby, old man, pants peeing hilarity that goes on before Tony finally decides I'm, I'm in, I've, I've solved it. I can, I can help you guys and, you know, correct these issues. But his, his big demand that nothing changed from the last five years, of course, his time with his daughter and Pepper. And then we have our teams and something, you know, the marketing from this film was revolutionary in that, you know, the vast majority of it was from the first 15 to 20 minutes of the film. Uh, there was some digital trickery there in terms of what they showed and even in some misdirection, you know, the scenes of uh, uh, Natasha with different hair colors and, uh, you know, punching a punching bag or shooting uh, a, a target, neither of which appeared in the film um, for that misdirection. But, you know, what they did within the last week to 10 days, starting to publicize, OK, there's going to be teams and people were like, oh, all right, what 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 does that mean? Teams to do what? And here we have the 
different teams headed to the different times for our time heist, but not before, as you pointed out, um, off mic, the really well done yet simplified. Cause again, this is a, you know, big blockbuster that people kind of turn their brains off with. Not that you don't for a back to the future or a terminator, but forget what you know, we're coming up with our own time travel rules to defeat the time travel tropes. Yeah, this is a portion of the story where they take the time to break it down expositionally, to sit and go from, not even to go from, they present this as time heist. It is shown as text on screen. It is said, so whatever else is going on with five years later and space aliens and where's Captain Marvel, etc., you know, to break it down as time heist to get the things to fix the thing that is spelled out completely. The team portion is spelled out. Uh, even Pete, when you get to the New York 2012 uh, battle there, when uh, the Hulk meets the ancient one and I was blown away by that cameo. And I was like, wow, well, this is the last awesome cameo we're going to see in this movie. And this is a great one. I would be wrong. Well, I'd be wrong that it was the last one. It was truly great. Um, to, to get there, the continuation of an earlier scene where here's all the other time travel movies and nope, that we're, we're throwing out those rules and then to get the rest of it talking with the ancient one with the visualization of here's the time stream and we're like, whatever, do what you have to do to fix it for our people. And she makes a very salient point. You can hurt just as many people by cutting off this branch and then the physical placing of the hollow stone back to that point when it was taken to keep everything the way it was pete this redefines what a time travel story can be in a way that we rarely if if, if ever see in tv and film yeah that the stones are going to be put back that that becomes such a big thrust for the movie to round it all out um, and Tilda Swinton here does a great job. So glad that we got to bring her back after Dr. Strange. Uh, hopefully in that inevitable sequel, there'll be some way to re-involve her as well. Um, but they're five years before Dr. Strange. And obviously that he gave up the time stone convinces her to hand it over. And what that scene also does is, you know, before we see uh, Loki in the new footage interact with the Tesseract and straight up disappear, prompting the second part of their mission, uh, both to another time with the Tesseract as the target, in addition to the need for more pin particles. Indeed, Pete, and between those two points, we get the return of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents Jasper Sitwell and Brock Rumlow. Uh, I know that with the latter, the actor had made some sort of reference as, you know, going back one more time, or I've said I'm going back one more time, what are they going to do now, fire me? But great to see them, and I guess now, Pete, is also the time to mention, if there was one more cameo that people were hoping for, they could have gone for Agent Coulson. They didn't. We'll just have our moment of harumph harumph because that is what that is. 
Yeah, I will talk about it a little bit later on in the podcast. But the the big one they went for, the one that when I found out that it was coming, uh, I I couldn't believe. Yeah, the return of Robert Redford, who, again, I have to wonder what these deals would be. Probably the Tilda Swinton deal. Okay, was there maybe a cameo contingency in there? Yeah, I doubt that they jerked around Robert Redford too much in terms of an alternate this or that. You know, it was such a self-contained character in uh, in, in his film, in, in The Winter Soldier, that I feel like it must have been, hey, Robert, can we get you back for a day? And this is not a small scene. I mean, there's tons of extras. There's tons of main actors. There, there must have been all this scheduling stuff to make happen and make happen they did in a scene that fits absolutely perfectly to the flashback moment that we're seeing for the first time, as well as its implications for Loki. It is just this perfectly crafted gear inside a very complex clock. Yeah, and to have Loki at that point disappear... And then we get the interaction of uh, Captain America with himself, believing that uh, one of them is Loki. Uh, really great scene that ends comically. It does, Pete. That's America's ass. I think we can all agree with uh, with uh, the, the later cap there. Uh, that's when we get the heist within a heist to 1970 New Jersey to get the uh, Tesseract back at that earlier point, as well as more Pym particles. Uh, we get, with I think appropriately little fanfare, what might be the last Stanley cameo ever, I think the big the big bow from Marvel was at the uh, you know the, the studio's title card for Captain Marvel, the first movie to come out right. since Stanley's passing. Here, not the time or the place to stop the story, and I dare say Stanley wouldn't have wanted us to stop the biggest movie ever, uh, or at least by, you know, by some measure to, to have more than a chuckle as he calls out for peace and love and, uh, drives off with a, with a special lady. I mean, my first memories of Stan Lee were the grizzled 1970s, you know, mutton chop leather jacket wearing Stan Lee days. So for this to potentially be the last one, and we do not yet know definitively if he shows up in Spider-Man uh, Far From Home. Um, that but, would be a fitting final one. Even if you have oh, more in the can, yeah. let him end with the greatest character he co-created. And, you know, but I digress. Absolutely. If, if this is it, though, this is a, a fitting way to go out. And again, we've had these... You know, at what point do you begin to belabor uh, the the goodbyes? They're certainly earned, um, but can become excessive. While in that shield base, uh, they come across the uh, the elevator mate played by uh, Yvette Nicole Brown. She, of course, formerly of Community. That's how she met the Russos, etc. So two Community connections here, Pete. Um, and she's also later the one to say, hey, there were some guys that looked weird, which, again, looking at the mechanics of the story, that's not there because they're going to get caught. That's not there because they're being rushed out, which I thought was the case. It, a little story pressure to get Tony to wrap up his conversation with his father in a bit, but most immediately, that's the excuse for Steve to end up in Peggy Carter's office and to have that love reminded, which 
was beautiful in and of itself, made sense in and of itself. Of course, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. would be at this base in 1970, but little did we know, that's also setting up the end of the movie. Yeah, and between uh, Tony taking on the identity of Howard Potts, the beatnik, and meeting his de-aged father in uh, John Slattery, and the Peggy stuff with Haley Atwell, which is you know, at long last, Matt, and then a first with the Jarvis actor, uh, of course, uh, James Darcy crossing over from Marvel Cinematic Universe TV for the first time ever. We've had a character created on the TV go onto our film screen. If only there had been more of this, and I say it in past tense because I really genuinely believe that Marvel television production is on the wane, particularly with Marvel Studios increasing TV offerings for Disney+. Plus. I think that opportunities like this are, are on their way out. Um, Pete, I remember in those, those halcyon days of yore going to see Winter Soldier, being convinced, oh man, of course the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are going to have a quick little cameo of only like you know, as, as glorified extras, as, as there's the attack on the main shield building or something like that, not meant to be that division, a strong one, but we get it here. We get it perfectly timed. Of course, Jarvis, the, the flesh and blood character would be driving, uh, uh Howard Stark here. Pete, in my head canon, I like to think that Haley Atwell put her foot down and said to Kevin Feige, <laughs> you need to have this guy, Believe me, I did, you know, these 18 or so episodes of, of Agent Carter. Of course, Jarvis is still driving for Howard Stark in 1970. You have to bring him or else. And Kevin Feige said, yes, that makes story sense, despite the fact that I want to crush Marvel television. So story one out, Pete. Yeah, uh, Agent Carter with the unfortunate distinction, the first Marvel TV show to ever be canceled. Uh, but what is it? reap us it, it reaps us this cameo and then we're in asgard 2013 matt with thor and rocket looking for the aether the reality stone in a, a scene a series of scenes that oddly redeems thor the dark world i think that most people could agree that thor the dark world is if you don't want to say the worst you could say the least great of the 21 films that are out there um and yeah to have this redemptive bounce to it pete i'll do you one better as social media was digesting the red carpet when natalie portman hit the red carpet and pictures were up there and i was already in my early or, you know i'm gonna start to tune out social media i don't want anything spoiled but i saw her there and it was like oh wow i can't believe natalie portman accepted the invite to walk the red carpet she was unhappy with the situation in the first two Thor films, and particularly Patty Jenkins as director. Then that was taken away, et cetera, et cetera. In retrospect, can you imagine a Patty Jenkins Marvel movie? It would have been as wonderful as, as Wonder Woman. But similarly, there was chatter on Twitter. Wow, they got Natalie Portman. Not, you know, no one thought because she's in the movie because she wants to support it, because she's contractually obligated, so whatever it is. It was just like, oh, they got the lady who's very famous who was in two Thor movies, not she's there because she's in this movie. Yeah, but she never 
physically interacts with any of the talent. She does not share a scene with Chris Hemsworth. Uh, I don't think Bradley Cooper was on set that day. I mean, we know that uh, he doesn't do the motion capture for Rocket. Uh, we never even get the the stabby removal of the aether from her. So it's kind of like... I, I get it, but at the same time, did you need to do it? It's essentially a glorified pickup. It's a it's a reshoot. One does wonder, you know, was she willing to do this asterisk or was she willing to do this? But you have to come out to me and shoot a blue screen in L.A. I'm not going out to Atlanta. Um, I think it is telling, as you said, it is telling that she doesn't interact with any of the on-screen people. Uh, one wonders, did you even have uh, Sean Gunn, who's the the body, uh, not exactly double, but the body presence for for Rocket Raccoon, was he even there? Um, but Pete, let's leave the past in the past. Whatever it was that you know made her unhappy with Marvel, rightly or wrongly, to come back for this, it's a nice moment. And uh, then on the heels of that, to get Rene Rousseau's Frigga back is a nice moment too, because in the dark world, Oh man, his mom died. That's really sad. You know, and these things happen in films and it was terrible for Thor and he moved on, et cetera, et cetera. To have this opportunity where he says goodbye, where she restates her own kind of magical abilities and basically does not want to hear that this could be her last day alive in the universe. It also strengthens that character as well. Who would have thunk it? It does. And it's a, it's a touching scene. And then again, we zing it with the humor here, maybe eat a salad before he recovers his beloved Mjolnir. This is the one moment that was a little head scratchy for me. So if he took Mjolnir and kept it, what happened for the rest of Thor the Dark World and then Thor Ragnarok and then all the other times he had it? Well, remember, we've said that anything that you're experiencing is your present and other people's pasts, and now I need a whiteboard. They did give that overall statement. I still I don't know that in this case it completely stands up, but whatever. They're space, magic aliens, science, etc. Um, we then do get another... Uh, you know, the other team in Morag in 2014, where, uh, where, um, where Rhodey and Nebula are searching for the Power Stone. Pete, this clearly the least consequential of the missions in terms of, you know, star power of these two people and kind of flashback ability. Oh, look, they watched the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. Not going to be the most consequential part, right? It's cute because we see Star-Lord, you know, in the iconic singing and dancing scene uh, and they get to watch him without the uh, the audio, which is great. Uh, and you get your ha-has. But, you know, one of the most consequential moments in that the memories, the uh, the Internet of Nebula, if you will, the net link uh connection there and the ability for Thanos to know what's going on uh, and and living once again as he is in this earlier time frame to go about preventing what's ultimately going to happen to him. 
smart way to re-inject Thanos into things. Um, and then, of course, you get the Nebula switcheroo, which, again, there's there's no way I would have predicted that the most impactful of the uh, the Avengers in their special time suits that even I saw a little bit in promotional stuff, who would have thought that Nebula was the biggest chip there in terms of story contribution and the nebula switch and bringing villainy back to the present day and all of that. It's just, it's a stunning turn of events. And on the heels of that, we boomerang to Vormir again in 2014 with Romanoff and Barton and they duel for the soul stone, a place we already know loaded with importance. Um, Natasha learns her father's name uh, you know, and it, it's it's so well underplayed um, by uh, Jeremy Renner. Uh, you know, you're going to make a big deal because the the skull guy there knows your daddy's name. but She never knew it. Um, something that I'm sure is going to have even more importance going forward. And then. All right. Which one of them is it going to be? Clearly, one of them is the sacrificial lamb here. But the seeming permanence of uh, Nat's death down to the blood, Matt, granted, when they did Gamora in the previous film, you really got to know to look for it. The, the blood, the green blood is there next to her green skin. Um, but they really sell you on the idea and carry through for the rest of the film that she is indeed dead. Well, I must confess the little fight between uh, Clint and Natasha had me a bit bored because I know there's a black widow movie coming and I know that, you know, Hawkeye has been in these movies least of all. And he, he's a really good archer, which is not quite the same as, you know, the ability to wield Mjolnir or something like that. So, and I, I know, you know, Black Widow 2 is a really powerful human and not super powered by suit or anything else, magic, etc. But it was clear to me, all right, this is going to be the tragic end for Hawkeye. And we've set up his, his sad arc, which is going to start with losing his family. Then the midpoint is him mowing down people in Japan. And now he's going to fall down the thing and sacrifice himself to see her fall. I was completely shocked. Uh, question marks abounding everywhere in terms of how does this make sense with where things are headed and and all of that. But again, a, a, just a shocking turn here. And it's from that that they reassemble at the Avengers facility without her. Um, and Hulk being the choice here to put on the Stark gauntlet. Um, and ultimately later on learning that he tried so hard to bring her back uh, when he brought everybody else back. It's, I mean, it, it's a shocking moment when Hulk is the one to snap. Uh, it kind of makes sense. Uh, Pete, you've, you've pointed out enough times that we're at the movies, you know, how I'll, how I'll check my watch occasionally because I'm trying to time out the movie and I, I, I try and do that a lot less. I don't, I, I don't know when this snap occurs, but I could tell that there was still plenty of story left. So it kind of was at this, it was at this strange moment of here comes the cavalry, but it's too early for this. And I'm not complaining that it was confusing. It was just like, there's so much story and I can't wait to see what happens next. 
Well, you get the birds, you get the call from uh, Laura Barton on uh, Clint's phone. So, you know, obviously something's up. And then Scott lets us know, oh, it's, it's worked. And it's in the sense of elation there that Thanos, through Nebula's help, the uh, the not yet redeemed Nebula, who's swapped the faceplate out with her later on redeemed doppelganger to bring Thanos through and just wreak absolute havoc on the Avengers compound. Maybe slight asterisk to that attack in that it wounds precisely no one. And I guess that's because of the great design, which has everything fall downward without falling on top of people. I kid slightly because clearly that's not going to be like, Oh man, we just lost Rody under a slab of concrete, you know, it's, it's, it's not the time or place to be killing people, but we get the beginning of this, uh, this, uh, battle here. And, uh, quickly we see cap wielding Mjolnir. You get the line from Thor, you know, I knew it, which again, Pete, for me, there's lesser films than age of Ultron, but I feel like age of Ultron is maybe number one in my book in terms of expectations were up here and you missed expectations Yeah. versus say, you know, a Thor sequel with dark elves, one of which is a doctor who, okay. Like, I think I kind of got what I paid for in that movie. Um, age of Ultron retroactively better in that, you know, that, uh, hammer lifting scene where he is worthy and Thor is happy and, and Pete, there's now, you know, two, two, uh, you know, magical uh implements to be wielded so he can have one and thor has the other and uh really fantastic moment and with thanos ready to not only snap them out but to uh replace them with people who will only be grateful to his tremendous his great plans and we have our avengers all of them reassemble Fantastic moment. I think let's get the quibble out here right now. The people who return, would it have been nice if they had more screen time? Yes. At what point did they say, let's make this a three hour movie, not 315? Um, are there probably more scenes of those people returning and talking? I would hope so. Let's get that extended edition out there uh, this, this fall or winter. But in the interim, not maybe the most shocking moment in the world that all of these people come back, but of certainly a well-earned one, an amazing one, and uh, in a certain sense capped off by by the uh, potential A Force preview, where all the ladies band together to uh, to, to keep the uh, the jeweled glove away from Thanos. There are better battles in Infinity War and then some of the other films, but. In terms of the moments that happen, this is clearly one of the top, if not the top moments in this sequence here to have them hand it off and then ultimately wind up with Captain Marvel showing back up. And let's be honest that they had made the plans to uh, make a Captain Marvel film that um Endgame represents the first performance of Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. And then she goes and films her own movie, which has come out now two months beforehand. Um, but getting 
this moment. And I don't feel it's shoehorned in the least. And that interaction with Peter Parker, she's got the new haircut that granted she had in the the five year later uh, reintroduction at the uh, much earlier portion of the film, but to just wreck the ship and then, uh, hey, Peter Parker, you got something for me. I just think they they completely nailed the amount of film to have her in, though she was a late addition to this universe. It would have been nice to see more of her. I think there is a little bit of a uh, Superman kryptonite issue going on in terms of she is so powerful that had she been around the entire time, it would have been, you know, blast things quickly, fight over. Uh, so that's something they can figure out. I think the the handoff from Black Panther to Infinity War and that through line was better done than Captain Marvel to this. Okay, again, there's a certain point where you say it's a three-hour movie. If they put all these things in that we wanted, it would have been a four-hour movie, which would have been difficult for audiences, difficult for theaters, difficult for everybody. And again, you want to give me, whether it's digitally, Blu-ray, whatever, a version that puts all these things back in things which i assume were shot at some level you know make it happen and people will line up for it in droves pete it did 1.2 billion dollars it makes me think that there's a potential you know home video market whether it's driving disney plus subscriptions or blu-ray only uh with uh you know the extended edition oh with one month off of disney plus or however you want to bundle it to make it make it work together it can certainly happen but all this story trajectory, uh, you want to go back to the first indication and then ultimate revelation that Thanos was behind what was going on with the Infinity Stones in 2012. We go further back all the way to 2008 with Iron Man, all coming down to Tony and to Thanos and his sacrifice and ultimately pretty moving funeral. Um, you know, you, you listen to our Patreon only, uh, preview, Matt, uh, you, you called this one correct. You thought that, um, Downey Jr. was going to be the one to go. Uh, they kept a really tight lid on this. Uh, even when we got a lot of foreshadowing, you go back to the, uh, the Benatar scenes, Earlier in the film, you've got the the crucifix-like frame right above him, and the and the light is so ethereal. Um, apart from his, you know, terrible condition that they they give you, they ultimately follow through on this, and we begin as we end with "I am Iron Man," a line that he himself wrote slash improvised back in the crazy days where they were essentially making the first Iron Man movie without much of a script. And sometimes they would start filming an hour late because he and Favreau and maybe Feige, although I feel like the, I feel like the, the, the stories of the beginning of Iron Man, it's like Downey Jr. and Favreau and maybe the writer or a third person, but they kind of saved it from this weirdo Feige guy who thought he had plans for the future. Um, but regardless, that's a Robert Downey Jr. line that ended the first movie. And when he said that, that's when I knew that it was his end, even though it had yet to come. Uh, the funeral, super moving. We had a little debate afterwards as to whether 
all the people assembled there in black as they they push the wreath with the you know proof that Tony Stark has a heart uh, kind of medallion there when they push that out into the water. We debated whether it was with any digital trickery or whatnot. I know that there's that MCU first 10 years class photo that they did that I think all of those actors are in. Um, and I suspect that if they had all those pe those people for a day or two, that even if it was just the one day, it was like, hey, in the morning we do this, in the afternoon we're all taking, you know, black SUVs to this farm in the Atlanta area to shoot this one thing with no dialogue. Just stand there, everybody, while the Steadicam operator goes group of three, group of two, group of three, group of four, et cetera, et cetera, up the hill. It's a scene that plays better with no dialogue because you really get this moment of all of these people who have contributed, and that's not even the extent of them, but all of these people who would be at that funeral scene it's just a stunning, stunning moment capped off by, by Nick Fury walking out of the house. Including, Matt, the little boy from Iron Man 3, that being Ty Simpkins there showing up at the funeral in what is the, the person, the cameo that people uh, had been running to Google to try to figure out who is that? I think if you needed to look up who it was, you, the, you, we, the audience in general, then maybe that was the one you didn't need as opposed to Secretary Ross, as opposed to can we have Colby Smulders take one more step out so she's maybe lit a bit better so that we can totally clearly see that it's her, you know, etc. But bottom line is it is it is a moment the likes of which we rarely, if ever, see for cinema, which is those many characters that have been actively involved in so many different movies coming together in one scene. And then not in a thankfully Lord of the Ring esque way, uh, but we begin to hand things off. We begin to close chapters with the main one closed. Uh, we get Thor and handing over of the responsibility of the Asgardians to Valkyrie. It's, it's interesting to think that we get more Valkyrie in this movie, more story arc for Valkyrie in this movie than we do Doctor Strange, Peter Parker, Black Panther, Shuri, etc. Um, but I think that's okay because, first of all, it's a nice end point for her. Second of all, she's in the whole movie, you know, so I think you do need to give deference to people who survived the snap and people who are in the entire narrative. They, if they have a beginning in the middle of the movie, they deserve an end versus, and Dr. Strange is back, back to go protect time and such, you know, and that can be saved for other movies, etc. But really, really nice ending for her. Uh, I think, too, it probably in a subtle way, uh, certainly not subtle in appearance, but in, in terms of Kevin Feige wanting to take these classic characters that were born of a certain time and a certain lack of diversity and start to diversify things where you can to have Tessa Thompson now playing the monarch of Asgard, small as it might be, earthbound as it might be, that's a step in the right direction. Absolutely. And then you have the 
as guardians of the galaxy, Matt, what with the guardians reunited and Thor headed off with them on adventures, perhaps to make Gamora remember. It's such a logical end point. That was such a, an absolutely fun part of, uh, of the movie there. Uh, pardon me of infinity war. And then to kind of leave on that note, we'll see where things end up story-wise. We'll see if, and when that movie comes out, we'll see if it ends up being more than one movie. Um, do they perhaps do some sort of vaguely linked, you know, guardians three leads to Thor four, that kind of thing. Um, I suspect that they probably intentionally did not have tons and tons and tons of plans after this movie in terms of this, this needs to set up a and B and C because this is an opportunity to wipe a lot of that away and to not make people feel like to see Avengers five, you just need to watch 28 movies before it. Otherwise, sorry, (laughs) nerd, you don't understand why Chris Pratt and Chris Hemsworth are hanging out, uh, you know, in the cockpit together. Do we have that potential though? We absolutely do. But the real narrative uh, nail in the coffin is for Cap to go back to return these stones. And what we're told is totally going to take five seconds for us, uh, but as long as he needs for him. The big confirmed thing heading into this movie regarding uh, Chris Evans was the fact that he was done after this now could it have been a, a an elaborate ruse or whatever okay maybe could it have been a money move but he seemed pretty set in terms of he's done this character for x number of years he had the years before it on his way up as an actor whether you want to say fantastic four whether you want to say some of the uh you know some of the comedies that he did even before that it seems that what he said is true, that he wants to enter the next phase of his career, whether it's directing, whether it's serious acting, whatever it is, he wants to leave Captain America behind. And to get all of that here in a really satisfying way where story-wise it makes sense to not kill off two people, but you need to exit two people and probably the two biggest in the entire stable of, of characters. The notion that off-screen he fixes everything including himself and we get that tie back to the 1970s scene and everything works out and he's back in the best old age makeup slash i'm going to assume computer generated stuff you know when we saw uh when we last saw old peggy carter she was in makeup and it was augmented with digital effects he looks flawless here i look forward to you know, 40, 50 years from now, comparing old Chris Evans to digital old Chris (laughs) Evans. Um, Then for him to hand over the shield and indeed the mantle of Captain America to, to Falcon, something that, you know, has been done in the comics, but I think something that really takes a leap of confidence, regardless of the fact that there's going to be a Falcon and winter soldier uh, TV show with this and that, the other, it's a monumental moment and it's it's another great step in the right direction in terms of not just diversity kind of in our world, but it's an earned character moment in theirs. Yeah, that's the word I was going to use. It's, it's earned. And uh, the, the deserved nature of Sam as uh, Cap's understudy, if you will, whereas Winter Soldier, the buddy, um, 
And like you mentioned before with Tessa Thompson, the diversifying nature of this universe, important to have that representation. So then, of course, Sam asks about the wedding ring, which we get the one big close up as the shield is handed over. And while he's not going to talk about it, we get the flashback where he meets with Peggy and they have that long overdue dance and really cleanses the palate heading into these credits, which are without a narrative scene for the first time in 11 years. It's, it's a great ending to the film. We get to see that moment of happiness. We get to have the rather harsh isn't the right word, but we get kind of the sudden cut to black to just say there's this bittersweet moment, the end. Yes, we don't have narrative scenes after that. I like that there's this extended bit of credits from the the non-Avengers and we get clips from uh, kind of re-engineered clips from some of the other movies, not just not just this movie. Then we get... Uh, in something I've only seen once before in Star Trek VI, we get the Avengers signing off with signatures, you know, mm-hmm. signatures on there. Really fantastic moment. Uh, the audience we saw it with broke out in applause a couple of times, particularly with Downey. And, you know, I like that the last thing that we see before kind of normal white text on black screen credits start is the signature of Robert Downey Jr., the end, the end to these first 11 years. But as some eagle-eared viewers have picked up, Matt, that might not be all. There is, at the very end, when there's the Marvel Studios logo, there's the clank clanking of a hammer hitting metal. To your ears, Pete, I believe I'm correct in saying that that was a sound taken directly from the first Iron Man movie. Yes, but as you have pointed out and others have sought all sorts of meaning, that could be a variety of things. I think that the best news is that it works on every level and it doesn't need to be a thing. If it merely is Tony Stark hammering out that armor, creating, in a sense, the MCU, if it's meant to metaphorically be the combined efforts of everyone at Marvel, including Kevin Feige, you know, this was the creation of a man into a hero and now we've come all these years, that works. If it is the clanging of the next person in an Iron Man suit, whether it's Iron Pots, whether it's Iron Heart, whatever it might be, it could be that. Um, If it is picked up several years down the line as the hammer of Doctor Doom creating his mask, and now that's the threat for Avengers 5 and 6, it could be that. Um I think it was the best move of all. You want to have a little something to stew over at the end that's kind of sort of a thing or kind of sort of not a thing. They could figure out what that thing is later on in terms of its officiality. But I like that they don't end with and next time because let this be the end game that it was always intended to be. Well, Pete, we have plenty more to talk about in this podcast, but have to take an opportunity right now to thank everybody who has supported us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure that the bleeps and the bloops happen as we extend our podcast empire. I say empire with some self-deprecation there, but as we extend our our list of of, uh, podcasts and um, we couldn't do it without them. 
16 and counting soon to be 17 feeds matt through itunes but everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content all it takes is a dollar to get you in the door and then there's every level you could ever want to uh contribute at so everybody who goes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek uh is really uh we are in their debt the dossier. A detailed look at our bad guys. Let's begin, Matt, with old McThanos. Yes, Farmer Thanos picking up those alien apple eggplants and cooking them up. Um, it's interesting to see him looking so purposeless. I wouldn't go so far as to say that I felt sympathy for him. But I think that insofar as Josh Brolin was tasked with playing a character who is the hero of his own story, you know, Thanos wanted to do a thing, worked hard to do a thing, and saw it through. To see Thanos now without purpose in the universe, that was well acted, even though I'm not buying it and he still is the worst thing ever. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how with the passage of time, Thanos is regarded in this universe. Tony's made him disappear, turn him into dust the way he turned trillions into dust. Um, but there's been two versions of him. One that was successful, one that fell short and that we see him scarred and it's like, all right, why is he scarred here? The iconography of his armor like a scarecrow at this farm. And then I didn't quite pick up the the purposelessness, but what I did was on his having accomplished his plan and what left is there to do. Captain Marvel's got him in a haircut and Thor cuts his head off and it's efficient, but deficient to the point that they can't undo what he's done. He's destroyed the stones needing to be able to uh, tell people that when he's got, you know, what appear to be burns on part of his body. And then he tells us, well, I destroyed the stones with the stones. It nearly killed me to know that they can't undo this. And then from there, at least not directly in the narrative, but in terms of our dossier, we jump to the 2014 Thanos, still vital, uh, able to look at all these different pieces, quickly put things together in terms of understanding the flow of time and, and how they're trying to, you know, kind of run things around him. And, you know, another formidable go here. In fact, you know, as somebody who, almost understands the Avengers plan better than they do. And, and knowing that he will, he will achieve his goal that almost empowers him more in his 2014 version. Yeah. With the aid of that original nebula and the device of her memories played back and it brings such resonance to infinity war when he first meets face to face with, uh, Tony and that he knows him that he gives the line there that he too is is burdened by knowledge and how can it not be this retroactive 
uh, I've seen Nebula's memories. I know what happens. Certainly, there's going to be a lot of reassessment of Infinity War uh, after this. Also getting some reassessment is Loki, who I must confess with all the other moving parts, I had to I had to confer with you as to the putting back of all the stones, but there's the Loki scene. Uh, we, of course, get him early on in what I thought was the one loving little cameo. Look, there he is still in, you know, basement space-esque prison in Asgard. But then later on to get more scenes with him in Stark Tower and then for him to take the space stone and to disappear perfectly in line with the character. Uh, I guess that's a branched off uh, timeline that we don't need to tell uh, the um, the ancient one about. You know, we, we took care of most of those time branches, not that one. <laughs> Shh. Um, but uh I guess there too, Pete, is the the possibility of more uh, more Loki story in the future, as promised on Disney Plus. Right, and I, I think it's with that glad handing. I mean, look that all three of the shows in development, and you know, two of which are formally announced in terms of titles, uh, are derived from essentially the resolution of this film. And what surprises me is I was fully prepared for the Loki series to be just, and certainly it's been presented as, he causes mischief throughout time. So in my mind, it was going to be this anthology prior to his death where, you know, Loki at the French Revolution, and then next week it's Loki at the moon landing. And after that, it's Loki at, you know, whatever, caveman times, whatever you want it to be. Um now you have this possibility of things moving forward as well, which, again, I think a little evidence of Kevin Feige looking to take his own end run around Marvel television. The idea that he's promised that these series are really going to be connected to the movies, and, you know, take real consequences from the movies, bring them to the TV shows and vice versa. Do we have a Loki who now was this close to being captured, you know, this close to 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 paying the price in Asgard, but now he got away? Yeah, and, and that the character has since been redeemed and then died. There's potential story to tell. Um, so that's going to be really interesting to see how that goes. A little less interesting is the return of a lot of members of Thanos' army and then all sorts of new creature additions that we had yet to see. Maybe it's moral relativism that we object to Thanos killing good people, but we don't object to, you know, subsequent snaps killing Thanos's army and all of his people. But, you know, you play with fire, you're going to get burned and they all got burned to ash, Pete. So that's just how that goes. Sorry, evil guys threatening to ruin the universe there's probably another thought of uh you know moral moral uh, theory and ethics that says the however many hundreds of thousands of thanos's army that got destroyed that is objectively less than the trillions and trillions of creatures that got killed under thanos so hooray good guys win yeah i mean they they fulfill a purpose but at the same time you know other than seeing Ebony Maw and Corvus Glaive there. 
briefly get a line or two of dialogue each. Um, it's with the idea that they're ultimately going to disappear. Well, Pete, who is the last villain on our dossier list? That would be three hour, two minute tentpole blockbusters. Well, <laughs> it's funny. I, I, Pete, I don't mean to throw rocks at the distinguished competition over there at Warner Brothers and DC Films. Is there a an urgent 8 a.m. Uh, meeting tomorrow, Monday morning, where they say, all right, guys, figured out what we need to do for Justice League 2. We need to make it three and a half hours movie, three and a uh, half hours uh, no. long. That's the solution. <laughs> it's not, it took all these years to reach this point to where even casual fans would be like, hey, it's that guy with the mustache who was like, I don't know, the president or the secretary or something. Cool, he's back. You know, let alone, oh my goodness, I remember seeing the Incredible Hulk in 2008 and all of that. It's all about character. It's all about character. And I am convinced that when the first cut of this movie came together, or, you know, first cuts, rough cuts are always super long. And then you, you talk about what doesn't work and you cut and you cut and you cut. I suspect that when that first cut came in and it was like, oh man, it's four and a half hours. It was like, uh-oh, how much is like where is the best movie here if you have four and a half hours how long is this thing going to be because i think there there would have been a business argument that if it's too long you reach the maximum number of shows you know there, there's some maximum ceiling which clearly we've now blown blown the roof off of but business-wise the length of this movie must have been hotly debated but it all worked out in the end. Again, there was no wrong path in the marketing, in the lead up, in the movies feeding into it, in the amount of show times, in the Fandango ticket meltdown. None of this ultimately went wrong for something that made four. Pardon me, that made one point two billion dollars in four or five days. Yeah, and um, the idea that this would be emulated—that just because we can, we should do it—is the wrong approach. This did not feel like a three-hour movie, yet you tack on all the previews, then all the drama that went on with people. What 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 do I do? What let me search. Apparently, there's an app, Matt, called Run P. <laughs> Are you aware of this? I am not. Uh, in part a... because I can look at the showtime. Like Pete, I literally did not. I didn't drink. I had my last drink at four thirty. For a 7.15 show that I knew would be starting around 7.30. I had my last drink then, went to the bathroom seven times, including the theater, brought water with me, and checked my watch occasionally so that at the 90-minute mark, I could start to sip again because I would be darned if I was going to get up and run to the bathroom. I mean, listen, I, I, I get that, but at the same time, I don't get that. And I say this as somebody who has suffered you know, two kidney stones and hopefully never again, and I would never wish that on anybody ever. Um but run P tell like, me about run P Pete. you could you can figure it out run P is an app that you will tell you when are the best times in a film to go to the bathroom uh, I'm looking at their Twitter here apparently apparently over the weekend their server went down gee whiz <laughs> um, was <charged> to dust <laughs> yeah um, so oh, I, I guess that's where we're at and it is interesting too, and I don't mean to keep returning to Disney Plus, which I'm sure at this point, you know what? If there's any Disney Plus executives listening, uh, you want to sponsor us, go for it because we're giving you free advertising as it is. But whether it's a 
Disney Plus digital exclusive, whether it's a Blu-ray, $30 steel box set exclusive, whatever it is. There's this short window where we are experiencing this movie in theaters, and then that window is going to go away. And then for the rest of our lives, this will be a home theater experience, unless you're going to go for the kitsch of, you know, Endgame, 10th anniversary, 50, whatever it is, you won't need to go see it in the theaters again. So it's this rare thing. I think that's part of the reason why so many people went out to the movies this weekend. It wasn't just, I'm fearful of being spoiled, although I think that was a large part of it. It was in this incredibly divided world of ours, there's a lot that we can't agree on, but we can all agree, darn it, I want to go see Avengers and people had the same sentiment in Canada, in Mexico, in the UK, in Germany, in Korea, in Japan, you know, worldwide, people went to go see this movie and share in a thing and had to pinch their legs a little bit longer because, uh, look, there's a Jeremy Renner, Renner signature. Look, there's a Scarlett Johansson signature. Five more minutes. I can make it. Welcome to level seven. Time to analyze and theorize. And Pete, a reminder to listeners that we are going to limit our theories in this podcast as to things going on within the narrative of the movie and soon probably i would say certainly within the next two weeks we're going to do another theory episode talking about where we go from here in terms of what are the, what's the impact on uh the black widow movie what's the impact on uh falcon and the winter soldier etc so with that pete let's start off talking about you know Hulk had some difficulty at the end of Infinity War. Yes, we get those five years in which he solves the problem the end. Yeah, there was a lot really riding on his inability to turn into the Hulk and never addressed. Yes, we learned that, okay, I've learned to control it and uh, he's got the best of both worlds now. But why? Could he not turn into the Hulk in Infinity War after he had been, uh, you know, moved via the Rainbow Bridge from the Asgard ship to um, to Earth and that uh, it never gets addressed? There were all sorts of theories Did did Loki, you know, inhabit him and that's why he he wasn't able to do it. There's never any answer. Is it possible that if we work backwards from he is Hulk is ready to sacrifice himself by wearing the glove and doing his own snap, that that is his moment of redemption, redemption from what redemption from the inability to have helped in the first place, which I'm not saying is maybe the best answer kind of in universe, but in terms of it having been written, is that maybe the answer? I mean, it's certainly something that we can look at and we only have what we have. But for them to make such a big deal out of it, you had to believe there was some root cause rather than, you know, basically Hulk, uh, you know, misfunction, dysfunction. Pete, within the story of this movie there's again reference made to black widow's time uh apparently with hawkeye in budapest uh it seems like they're setting up that flashback uh you know the the, the movie being a a 
one that takes place in the past, a, a prequel of sorts versus a future for Black Widow. If only there was some way that they had kept a lid on the Black Widow casting to this point. Um, and then, oh, you you thought, you know, you've never seen her, uh, you know, past. You'll You'll never see her future. Well, there's more coming with her because she's getting a, a solo movie, one that, you know, there's speculation could be Marvel's first R rating. Time will tell with that. They're, I think they're in an interesting position in that she's not super powered. And if Clint Barton's going to be in it, he's not super powered. So what does that movie look like if it's not going to rely on a giant laser light shooting into the sky? Like, all other movies, action movies in the last 20 years, but time will tell on that. It still is in the early phases. I would argue too, Pete, like, yes, things have been announced or at the very least, you know, kind of like exclusive, you know, secret source info from deadline from the Hollywood reporter. I don't know that that has had, I wonder how much of how many people in the public at large know that there is a Black Widow movie guaranteed coming and that work is being done on it, uh, as opposed to, say, you know, your Comic-Con D23 kind of here's what it is and here's the cast, that kind of large audience saturation moment. So I, it's something we could put forth to, to the listeners. How aware were you of a Black Widow movie being being actively worked on? All right. The next one I think we really need to talk about because we had it must be important bring it pete we had the reversal of the snap and everybody shows up we we have very clear rules about what happens there tony tells hulk just bring back the people who were gone okay uh don't erase the last 5 years all of that counts they won't know that there's been any passage of time they've not aged etc cetera, etc cetera. Except there were people in some fairly perilous situations. I'm thinking people who turn to dust in the helicopter that then slams into a skyscraper in New York, right as Maria Hill has turned to dust and before Nick Fury turns to dust. So what happens with those people, people who were behind the wheel and then the car you know, slammed into a tree, do they just show up next to that and be like, huh? I mean, Peter Parker tells us uh, he passed out and then he woke up and then Dr. Strange started doing the, the weird circle thing and it's cute, but I think we need like a harder core answer. Well, I think that you have part of your answer in the example that you just gave. Don't forget that Peter Parker was at some other point in the galaxy and then it's on Titan, then was transported to earth with Dr. Strange, uh, who, I, who was also on Titan. So point being this, I think that you are asking these all powerful stones that can kill on a level that we've never seen before that use magic science mumbo jumbo can we also ask of them to put people back in safe spots? Um, sure. Insofar as my entire uh, test example of Infinity Stones combined with an Infinity Gauntlet to do some massive universal thing, is it's limited to these two movies? Then sure, it can act. If you want to snap them back, but they're all snapped back in a safe way, 
I guess these all powerful elements created the beginning of cosmos can make that happen too. You alluded to it earlier and it just bears mentioning again, because it, it seems like perhaps the greatest missed opportunity in these films since the original Avengers, we have had Clark Gregg's Phil Coulson called by Nick Fury, an Avenger. And they don't even to our knowledge know that he is alive, nor has he popped back up. I think that that remains proof that there is this split between Marvel Studios and Marvel TV. The fact that they didn't get Clark Gregg out there for the 10th anniversary picture, uh, now going on a year and a half ago, it's... It's heartbreaking because I think, you know, as fans of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we appreciate him. As fans of the actor and having met him, we appreciate him. I think just as MCU fans, I mean, the entire first, the premise of them being Avengers in the first Avengers film was to avenge him. It's it's a job done dirty, and it's a small, minuscule point here but it's something that my goodness pete if you're going to bring back you know thunderbolt ross if you're going to bring back maria hill in a wordless cameo scene you could have brought him back too in some capacity would it potentially have gotten in the way of what we've heard of the show okay fine let the show run secondary to that or let it not meet up whatever it is shame on them for not having sealed the deal there and then nowhere near on that level that we have the reversal with Star-Lord and Thor and the dad bod Thor and Star-Lord never gets a crack about his physique when that was the whole thing uh, about Quill's um, insecurity in Infinity War. It just it feels like a missed opportunity. Uh, again, I think that that's probably a scene that was scripted, that was shot, that was improvised, that was done different ways. And then at a certain point in the edit, you go, it's taken us, you know, this long to get to the climax of the film. I am Iron Man, the end. Then you do the funeral. Then you're going to do the true falling action of the rest of the plot to wrap up these plot threads. You don't have time for such levity. Um, certainly not in a theatrical presentation. You want to set up Thor and the Guardians of the Galaxy zoom off, and you want to have that, you know, I'm the leader. No, I'm the leader, which is a very funny moment. I don't think you have time for more at that point. Has the Soul Stone been returned? The power of the Soul Stone is unlike the other stones in that it seems to have this sense of, of personality, of justice, of, of those sorts of things. I would imagine that, yes, it has been returned to, to Red Skull to watch over until the next person comes along, hopefully By not. Captain America, though? Um, sure, why not? He can time jump, he can space jump, go back there, and I hey guess... Hey, buddy, here's your, here's your stone. Yeah. See ya. Uh, would it make for an awkward moment? Sure. And let's be clear that there's a little bit of writerly hand-waving in terms of 
and then Captain America returned everything and everything is okay. And we need to now give Chris Evans his really heartfelt and, and well-earned exit and something that lands emotionally with the audience and pass on the mantle of Captain America and end the movie and end the first 11 years of this stuff, even though fine far from home is the end of this phase, which I don't really buy much as I don't. Yeah. We'll leave that to a, a different argument, but so much had to go on there, uh, you know, and thus he did it successfully. The end is there maybe some potential for some interaction between the two of them again, extended edition or a comic version or whatever it is, maybe, but hooray, Pete, he did it. Lastly, you know, we have Gamora, we have Loki and those deaths were fairly spelled out in infinity war, but who would have figured a robotic character who can be rebuilt that we have the stones that they wouldn't reconstruct vision. Yes. We know about the, the Disney plus show coming. We get the line out of Wanda Maximoff to Thanos. You took everything from me and, and you know, she's going to get her retribution. Um, but really kind of surprised, no vision. Particularly with knowing that the show is coming. That said, I think that a potential storyline for the show to give us in six or eight episodes their their romance and their time together as powered people and to kind of make it this intimate thing. I almost welcome that against the eventual backdrop of and they will lose it and they will lose this love. I almost like that better than an open-ended storyline. And I think that's part of the goal of the Marvel Studios TV shows is to give things a definitive arc, not the here's season one. And then when we get season two and then when we get season three, it's going to be, no, it's these eight episodes and that's it. Um, and I think if they want to walk that line between maybe uh, Falcon and the winter soldier, maybe that's going to be multi-season, but WandaVision not, I think it's a nice way to kind of split that as a product and, you know, we need to have certain prices paid. If everybody came back perfectly okay, then it would all mean a lot less. Let's check the wire, Matt. Pete, we start with our pal Bob Keeley, Dr. Bob Keeley, as he's known in some quarters. And he says this, what a great three hours at the movies. Were there a few plot holes? Yes. Time travel is a little bit of a cheat, but I don't care. What I did care about was the journey of every one of the main characters in the movie. I heard people sobbing around me throughout much of the final hour. All of the original Avengers get a fine conclusion to this part of their story. So much fan service in this movie. Peggy Carter gets her happy ending. Pepper Potts in an Iron Man suit. The hug between Peter and Tony. So many great moments. I kept myself spoiler-free until I had a chance to see the movie on Saturday, but I kept thinking about a tweet from TV writer Mark Bernadine. Saw hashtag Avengers Endgame last night. Still processing. We'll need at least once more to dial it in. But all those planes that were in the air, logical and emotional, they landed every one of those mother dot dot dots. Bob has slightly edited Pete. He's He speaks cleanly. We speak uh, cleanly. Um... Back to Bob's words here, quote ended, Mark is right, so many threads tied up nicely. They nailed it. And that from Bob Keeley. They did. And, you know, the, the small nits that we've picked throughout this podcast pale in comparison. I mean, 
the the biggest one emotionally for us the the lack of a resolution with Colson that that Tony Stark has died and not had one more scene with uh, Agent Colson feels like we've you know we've been cheated in a way um, and and I get what he's saying about time travel as a cheat but such is the nature of those films. Next email here is from Enza, who says as follows. Hi, guys. I was waiting impatiently for your review of this one. I've been thinking about it since Wednesday and had no one to talk about uh, it. Very, very frustrating. Okay, so I loved it. The three hours went by so fast. Not a full moment. Favorite things about the movie. Bad. All of the get the team back together sequences. Seeing all the characters we love and miss. Peggy, Jarvis. Ant-Man Paul Rudd. I just love him. His reverence to Cap was so funny. Cap's Avengers Assemble. Chills. Also, he finally feels worthy, and seeing him with Mjolnir was amazing. Cap's happy ending. Time travel inconsistencies aside, it felt right and deserved. Steve is with his girl. The snap that brought everyone back. The moment everybody we lost went through the portals, I got so emotional. Thor. I don't mind what they did with him. It was acknowledging that all the losses, the despair, really got to him. He bounced back, and he will get back to his usual self. But I felt it was good to see that even gods can feel down and depressed. They took advantage of Hemsworth's comedy chops hilariously. Tony, heartbreaking but a fitting heroic end for the man who saved the worlds. This is already so long, so I'll stop there. Seeing it again tonight. Looking forward to your thoughts. Cheers from Belgium. Enza. Yeah, I think Enza's really hit the nail on the head as far as what they did with Thor. It, it really worked as the big three member who's, you know, still invested in sticking around in these films uh, and, and has this comedic ability. They really handled him well. Last email here, Pete, from uh, our pal Mike Sorensen. The subject line is long Avengers Endgame. Spoilers ahead, so let's buckle in. Uh, good morning, Matt and Pete. Let me first open with the platitudes that are richly deserved. You guys put out quality content for so many shows and films. I'm not sure when you find the time to sleep or play, let alone have actual day jobs or lives. Thank you for your dedication to bringing all this to us time and time again and in such timely fashion every time. And in this case, aside from just being generous about trying to prevent spoilers, I appreciate you pushing the Avengers Endgame review back to the end of the weekend because it gives me a chance to chime in. Okay, so it's the morning after. I attended an 8.30 p.m. screening here in the Middle West while so many of my compatriots were more concerned about guys on ice skates down in St. Louis. But I had more important places to be. Let's dive in. Mike gives a spoiler warning and says, I'm certain that neither of you need it by this point, but I figured still better safe than sorry. The film opens up with a happy, cheerful family scene that, if you had paid any attention, had you choking up in the first 30 seconds of the film. Clint Barton doesn't go from Hawkeye to Ronin because he got a bad batch of Chewy Chips Ahoy at the family <laughs> cookout. From there, we get into the meat of the movie, picking up after the Captain Marvel post credit scene. I'm surprised they didn't uh, include that. Even with a runtime of over three hours, they're putting a lot of faith in people who, uh, having seen the film and stayed through the house lights coming up. I have to say, Farmer Thanos still makes me think that, while he was absolutely wrong about his execution, he wasn't inherently evil. 
he proved that he wasn't just out for a power grab. So we open with a failure again. And that sets the stage for five years of misery. The scenes they show look more like it would have been within the first few weeks, months, maybe a year or two. I'm not sure I buy five years of the world remaining that bleak. Maybe that's optimistic of me, but the human psyche is such that we tend to push past tragedy because we have to. Once Scott comes back, it gets a little more odd. Some people do seem to have moved on. The memorials seem just about perfect. Not overly crowded, no wailing, just a handful of visitors, like real places we have now. But the kid on the bike seems shell-shocked, like it happened the day before. And he would have been about two or three when the snap came, and probably wouldn't have even remembered it. I'm not downplaying the loss in the universe. I'm just saying that we've seen events in reality that inform this fiction. And five years is pushing uh, for that kind of bleakness. Natasha being defeatist and still trudging on while Steve being optimistic but ready to give up was a fantastic contrast. Played simply over a peanut butter sandwich. This, of course, ends maybe not even the first act, but more of the prologue of the film. I think that we can agree this film is long enough to say it has a prologue. The first act really kicks off with the new plan to try and set things right. Scott's totally not back to the future fueled idea uh, leading to the getting the band back together hypermontage. I love the new incorporated Banner Hulk. Even though they hid, it, uh, hid him under the CGI, it let Ruffalo have a lot of fun. Jumping forward a bit here, the scene where he had to pretend to be the 2012 Hulk smash version was the subtle comedy gold I, that I love Ruffalo pulling off. Thor's transformation into the god of flubber was amusing, and I'm allowed to say that since I resemble uh, that remark, though it's honestly tough to, do, to suspend disbelief that far. Yes, the talking smartmouth raccoon is far easier to accept than Hemsworth getting that far out of shape. I'm not completely sold on Nat's heartbreak at seeing what Barton's become either. I know it's a seeing is believing kind of thing, but she's been uh, told for years, according to Rhodey, what he's been up to and seemed pretty okay with it. So the sadness when she finds him in Tokyo felt just a bit misplaced. Maybe it was a crack in the shell, but it wasn't set up all that well, in my opinion. The mission itself was fun. The jumping around to past movies in the franchise was a nice treat and was much to Scott Lang's delight, I'm sure, very Back to the Future. Finding a way to bring back old faces that had no other right to be there, Tilda Swinton, Robert Redford, Frank Grillo, and Maximilio Hernandez, to name a very few, was pretty damn brilliant of the Russos. Playing with time opens up those possibilities, but they were done organically, not just random shoehorns. Also, and this may be a big takeaway from the weekend, they kick the door wide open for how they're bringing Loki back for his Disney Plus series without it all being set in the past. Oh, and getting a little snarky nod and wink to Captain America's comic book turn as a Hydra agent made me laugh out loud. The only one in the theater to do so, which got some odd looks. The trip back to the 1970s was great. Stark getting some closure with his dad was a nice wrap-up to his story arc, and I didn't feel, uh, and it didn't feel as contrived as it should have been. Seeing James Darcy back as Jarvis was a treat. The moment Steve ducked into the office and I saw Tur on the backwards of the door, I gasped back a little sob. My wife looked at me like I was insane, but I knew right then what was coming. And it was handled so smoothly, setting up a stellar payoff. Now, though, we get to some stuff that's a bit less glowing. Over the course of 20-plus films and a decade of story, 
All we've heard about is how powerful these stones are, how no mere mortal can handle them. Half-celestial Peter Quill required the joint strength of a team made up of strong than, stronger than human beings to hold down the power stone. As guardians carried the, carried the reality stone in a sealed container, the time stone was in a bauble and only exposed for use. Ego, a celestial living planet, was awed when he heard the tale of a human holding an infinity stone, non-specific, not the power stone, and infinity stone, and knew it had to be his son. But here, Hulk gets handed the time stone like a lucky rabbit's foot. An argument can be made that uh, the Barton earned the right to hold the soul stone due to his sacrifice to gain it, but he's still just human, and it's still an infinity stone. If you establish rules of a film or a series, you have to live or die by those rules. You have to explain exceptions to them, or you're just cheating. For a decade, the rule has been mere mortals, especially humans, cannot handle infinity stones in their raw form. Only now, they can, when they need to, when it's convenient. It's a bit too deus ex machina. Yes, an explanation for it. Everyone's carrying an infinity fanny pack to carry them. Would have been a little writer's hand, but at least they would have acknowledged the rules they established. Speaking of rules, I know it was established in the previous film, but the thing about actually using the stones, uh, hurting the user or whatever, is a bit weak in my opinion. It's a way to offset the truly omnipotent power, uh, cosmic scale power that the gauntlet and its wearer should have. But if you're not going to go full-on comic booky nuts with it, use something else. Yeah, it's way too corny for the MCU to show Thanos on a float space dais juggling planets around him. But damn it, that's what you can do with this thing. And stop with the finger snapping already. Really, that's an idiomatic expression about something being easy. The idea of making that the actual mechanism, keeping Thanos' fingers apart, stopped him. One of the stones is called the Mind Stone for crying out loud. It was just a terrible concept. Okay, enough of that. I am a Marvel fanboy and will be until the day I die. But that doesn't mean I won't call out crappy issues as I see them. The epilogue of the movie stumbled a little bit for me. Much like my issue with Winter Soldier, which should have just ended up with Steve waking up in the hospital, Sam saying, on your left, and Steve giving him a soft smile, roll credits, there was just too much stuff to wrap up to put a natural punctuation on this one. The passing of the shield was handled beautifully, similar to the comics. Steve and Peggy with the storybook ending finally brings it all full circle. I'm excited for where the MCU goes from here. The connected universe has changed not just comic book films, but movies in general forever. Everyone will be chasing Marvel to try and do what they've done. While it's possible, if doubtful, someone might do it better, no one else can say that they did it first. Not to this scale, not to this level. That's why, as much as I love other franchises, first and foremost, I'll always make mine Marvel. Excelsior, Mike Sorensen. Well, wow. Really thoughtful from Mike there, and high praise indeed. Uh, love the infanity pack idea. Somebody get on that now. <laughs> indeed. And, I mean, Mike's email so very thoughtful there. And I think he raises a good point that this is going to add to the attempt that other comic book movie franchises, other franchises in general are going to try and build on this. The question is, do they put the time in or do they say, let's announce the team up movie before we have the first movie out of the gate, dark universe, etc. 
Pete, two quick tweets here. One from ZP International. A fantastic assembly of characters. I was confused by the time jump. Some amazing uh, effects of CGI on Thor and Banner. Uh, expecting a bit more of Carol, actually. Characters dealing with the loss and moving on were well done. Great seeing the tie-ins from the earlier films. Tearful ending. Uh, then Pete, rather fittingly, uh, a tweet from Hydra Lives. That's Hydra underscore lives. I'm interested in your explanation for Cap catching up to Sam and Bucky at the end, considering the previous rules laid out by Hulk earlier. Also loved the Avengers aftermath time jump with a Hell Hydra from Cap and him fighting himself and admiring Captain America's ass and the dude. So Pete, how do we work out the fact that it was don't mess up the space-time continuum and he still kind of did? Because it's Steve Rogers and because we're going to make that exception. Um, I've seen it twice. I, I want to pay attention the next time I watch it is old man, Steve sitting on the bench. Uh, is, is there somebody sitting there and then we notice, Oh, it's an old man over there. It's Steve Rogers. Um, that might be the best way to sell it, but Okay, so he goes back. They're they're plot armoring themselves ahead of time that, oh, it's only going to be five seconds for us. And he shows up a different way. I I, I think they've still done what they they talked about being the theory of time travel. Did he end up on the bench at the other side of the lake? that the Hulk had thrown earlier. Do we have bench <laughs> continuity as Damon Lindelof was concerned about? Pete, we'll save that for our, our other theory cast. Uh, what communiques do you have from Facebook? Well, on Facebook, Matt, of course, from number one Patreon patron, Mary Kirk, uh, we have her impression. So after 12 hours to process my feelings, they are still a jumble. Endgame is epic, all caps, in a way that is beyond description until you experience it for yourself. It honestly does hit about every emotion in its three hours, and some scenes are so grandiose, I don't know if any movie is going to be able to do it again in the rest of my lifetime. Sorry, episode nine. I invested a lot of my life over the last 11 years loving and anticipating these movies. And with this final chapter of this particular story, I can honestly say none, all caps, of it was wasted. It was as satisfying as any book series I've ever read, and I've read thousands. I am ultimately content. Well, if you can make Mary Kirk content with this story arc somebody who's so deeply ensconced in marvel happenings and you can have this massive box office that's getting the the the, the zoomed in fan and the casual fan alike made very happy indeed a little bit more from mary second viewing so many small moments that if you've watched all the movies repeatedly are echoes or callbacks or built off of 11 years of character development the craft of it all is astounding, and the payoff for someone deeply invested in those characters is a hundredfold. No decision or choice seems out of place for anyone. I feel doors were open for future storytellers to be able to use. And has there ever been so much brilliant fan service in anything 
anywhere? I say a resounding no. Again, that that sentiment shared by a lot of people in terms of the uh, the massive success of the film. Replying to Mary, and as we had put the call out on Facebook, Alicia Jimenez said, content is a beautiful way to feel. Joel Stockwell says, that's a pretty perfect review. Thanks for sharing with us all these years. Wendy McNiff writes, for Spoiler Pete, Endgame is fantastic. The movie takes us on this emotional journey through grief, guilt, love, camaraderie, humor, and joy. It is a great wrap-up to the epic tale Marvel has spun for over a decade. It pulls at all your emotions while delivering a fantastic action-packed movie. Well done. I might even let Mary Kirk drag me along a second time so my kid can see it. That is probably the biggest endorsement for a movie you'll get from me. I'd actually pay to see it again in a theater. Full price, and that never happens. Ever. Leroy Byram Jr. writes, It was like an itch was developing over 22 movies, and it finally got thoroughly scratched. Rhonda Grogan writes, This movie was exactly what I was wanting. Sylvie Le Chardonnayer writes, I'm left with a few questions, but overall, very well done. Sarah Bloy says, same. I got a few questions, but nothing I can't immediately think of explanations for. It was everything I could have hoped for in a conclusion and more, while also being a decent jumping off point for the newer characters. Rhonda Grogan writes, okay, official response from me. I need to see it again. Need to. It was the ultimate culmination of all that has come before. There were so many moments I had been wishing slash hoping slash wanting and moments I had no idea how much I wanted. The start of the movie was unexpected, but made total sense. They grabbed my heart at the beginning and kept complete control of it for the whole movie. Karen Angela Allen writes, I'm amazed at the amount of ground they covered. Also, that they said, okay, here's the obvious movie and dispensed with it in 10 minutes. That's a really great observation there. And I think that's part of what makes the movie work so well is that it, it, it really does have all these unexpected twists and turns. And then lastly, Matt from Rebecca Harange, I hope I'm saying that correctly, H-R-A-N-J. I've been thinking about the fan service a lot. It often bothers me, but I can't think of a single instance that doesn't fit the character or moment. So good. So fantastic to have heard from all these people, whether it was via Twitter, via DM, via Facebook, via email. And Pete, I know there's one more bit of feedback that uh, is another way people can share their thoughts. Yes, an iTunes review left to the Marvel Movie Podcast by Fantastic Geek by Cell Shaded. The headline is The Go-To MCU Podcast, and it is five stars, and reads, When it comes to the MCU, you'll find nobody better than Matt and Pete. Their dedication is unrivaled, covering every movie and every episode of every show, and their discussion and insight are second to none. Well, thank you, Cell Shaded, for those uh, those 
very kind words there very very appreciated words love it when people go to itunes and leave a review there helps get the fantastic geek word out there i know pete in the last couple of weeks there was there were a couple of questions sent our way you know what other mcu podcasts do you guys listen to and whatnot and pete we're we're going to be just shy of two hours for this uh for this uh podcast here you add the three hours of seeing the movie this past weekend other real life things going on you know i know mike Sorensen doubts what we do you know d- doubts whether we have time for other things but luckily because because we have that time stone oops i mean because we have our ways to, to to make it all happen but uh you know wish we could be listening to some of the the other podcasts out there because they're, they're really there's no competition in podcast land you can listen to as much as you want but i feel like as we get close to the two-hour mark here we've said everything we want to say on endgame so hopefully people continue to enjoy this podcast don't forget in the next i'd say average wait time the next week and a half or so we are going to continue to talk theories outside of this movie how this movie impacts much of the rest of the mcu so pete how can people be in touch with you to talk further end game thoughts theories etc you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 10,439 followers can't be wrong and while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, amidst the other things that we podcast, got to talk some Cloak and Dagger this week. Going to be talking Star Trek Discovery Season 2 before too long. I know we're going to be back talking more endgame theories and impacts on the MCU in uh, the coming days, coming weeks. So with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final endgame word for now. I am inevitable. <laughs>